Good afternoon, Sarah Hepler. Good afternoon, Nancy Rommelman. How do I look? Do I look okay? You actually look amazing. I was going to say, oh, you, you, you dolled up for our guest. I have my I hair in like a pebbles Flintstone uh, poof over here. Um, you did. Do you, do you yeah. want to? I'm you trying to tell? be professional over here. I'm trying to make a good impression. Yeah, your lipstick matches your your paint. Anyway, do you want to introduce our guest? I'm who I'm so excited to have, and I wish we weren't all on a clock because I want to talk to her for about five hours, really. But so. we shall release her sooner than that. Yes. Carrie Howley is my new favorite nonfiction writer, and I don't just give that shit away. Her 2022 essay on Britney Spears tells the story of the pop star and her family with the haunted beauty of a Southern Gothic. Howley has a new book. Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, about whistleblowers in the surveillance state, a subject I had no interest in reading, but boy, was I wrong. What a banger, man. What This a is a banger. profound, funny, fully absorbing book that connects the dots over the past 20 years as the national security state rose alongside technology. The New York Times named it a top 10 book of the year. Carrie Howley is a staff writer at New York Magazine, despite the fact that she lives in Los Angeles. She has been an editor at Reason Magazine and a professor at the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program. Her celebrated first book was Throne, a book about mixed martial arts, as if she didn't already seem intriguing enough. Carrie Howley, welcome Carrie. to Smoke em If You Got Him. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Did Carrie. I get anything wrong in your introduction? You didn't. And thank you for mentioning that you had no interest in the subject of the book, because honestly, neither did I. Um, and that was part of what, you know, I felt pulled into it. Um, similar with MMA. Um, I didn't want them to put deep state on the cover for that very reason, because I feel like the kind of person who'd be drawn to this book is the kind of person who specifically doesn't want to read about the deep state. Um, but you know, we don't win every battle. I, look, it's a book for people, a, a book about the deep state for people that, that have totally taken a pass on the subject of the deep state. I, I can, I can give it that endorsement like that whole subject and everything that it connotes for me just is like it shuts my brain down but because you wrote it I was gonna read it right um no this is an amazing book it's a book about uh it's it's journalism it's cultural criticism it's philosophy um you know I was reading the New York Times review and she calls it unclassifiable um how do you, how do you describe it I mean, I try to avoid describing it. Right. Um, I will tell you how I came to it, which is that I, um, I feel that there's this like unnamed anxiety that we've all slowly slipped into where everything that we write, I mean, every, all of our communication is now, or is largely written and therefore alienable from us. So we're texting, we're emailing, we're putting things in the cloud, we're Facebook messaging, DMing, and all of these things have slowly crept into our lives and can be separated from us and made to build an identity that is like factually correct. These are all things that we said, but doesn't seem to reflect who we are or who we think we are. Um, and I think that's actually very stressful, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, your text can be subpoenaed at any time. Like some, some factual caricature of you can be assembled from what you've put out there and what is now recorded and made semi-permanent. Um, and people have not had to live this way before. Um, and yet, like, it's very hard to think about. And whenever I would try to 
say, read a book about this or explore this further, that book would be, it would like turn into a history of surveillance or uh, an analysis of the Fourth Amendment, you know, like that's right. Or the books that we don't want to read. Um, and I was interested in like kind of the humanity there and the emotions there. Um, and so I, that was kind of my way in. And then I found various characters who are kind of living lives where surveillance was very meaningful. I want to, before we get into the characters, can we talk about the title, um, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs? Um, it's so rich and so, uh, like I wouldn't know what that book was about. Right. Um, tell me why you chose, like where that, where that, that phrase came from. So there's a 2012 viral video in which a woman at a conference is making the argument that monster energy drink is a tool of the devil. And she's actually very convincing. She has she's like, so persuasive. We watched so this. <laughs> we yeah, watched it today. Like, it's so like physically, she has this incredible unity of what she's saying and like what she's doing with her hands and body. Um, it's like very slick and well done. Um, and it's an interesting argument, right? And mm-hmm. she ends she ends by saying bottoms up and the devil laughs, which I just also love the rhythm of that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like kind of trying to, I was trying to consider this, this argument that monster energy drink is a tool of the devil, taking all of her arguments into account. The more I researched into monster energy drink, the more problematic it seemed. Um, for instance, it's a, it's, it's the biggest copyright bully, right? Like, so there are like mm-hmm. rankings of the biggest copyright bully. If you use the word monster or beast, like monster will come after you, right? Um, and it's also been involved in all this litigation about the abuse of its employees, abuse of women and its employees, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there, there is a legitimately persuasive argument to be made that the devil is a shapeshifter and perhaps one of its forms is monster energy drink. So we're dealing with issues of paranoia and fact and the way we receive information um, and all of this seem thematically linked to whatever it is I was trying to get at. One of the things that I love about this video, which we'll put in the episode notes, if you haven't seen it yet, um, is that like, first of all, like this is the kind of thing that like monster energy drink is a tool of the devil is like an absurdity. And then as she's going through each of the points, you're kind of like, oh, I'm kind of seeing where she's going with this. Like this is actually, she's building a good case. And it's such a great example of what you do again and again in the book, which is show us how these pieces of data that we have, whether we're the government, whether we're people on Twitter trying to figure out what went on in a celebrity's life, whether, you know, whoever we are, we're taking these pieces of data and we're building stories about them that can be completely wrong. Or maybe they're true. I mean, who knows, you know, but the way that data gets flattened and you build stories out of that and the more information we have, it's almost like we have the less, less information because we're just swimming in all this information. Um, so anyway, I mean, that's very well put. Thank you for saying that. And I know both of you are very familiar with this as people who try to add context to the kind of flattened stories you see in the media or caricatures of people. Um, you know, what, when we write profiles, it's like there 
it's a it's it's a it's a morally morally complicated thing to do because yes. you are condensing somebody, you're seeing them through your lens, you're including details taken from you know an infinite array of details that shape them in some way, um, and all I think the only ethically way to approach it is to um, to try to add rather than reduce context, right? To try to add complexity um, to something that might be, as you say, like out there and flat. And um, that's, I hope that the book is doing that. Uh, it did it tremendously. You've entered for me the Pantheon and of course, Didion is there and, and to a certain extent, William Langosfisha, though I haven't really read him in a long time. I'm not even sure if he's still writing for Vanity Fair, but you've entered the Pantheon of, you writers that can write about anything. You can write a 200 page book about tying your shoes and I'm there for it yeah. because it's totally. just sentence by sentence and thought by thought. And when the velocity kind of speeds up and then when it slows you down, it, it also carry, I mean, I, I write for reason as well. I'm surrounded by, you know, reasonites and, and, you know, always talking about like, you can't let the government have such power and we don't want to do this and no, don't give them this. And you try to be a certain amount of careful, but you, you talk very little. It's like, it's so embedded in our lives now. It's impossible. It's actually impossible because your vacuum cleaner is actually now spying on you. So like, what are you not going to vacuum the house? It's like, maybe you right. should just sweep from now on. Okay. But you had a sentence. I mean, there were so many sentences that I underlined and pulled and I'm like, forget it. I just, I just can't take them all. But you had one here that I thought was really kind of sum things up. It said, there will never be a state from which there is no good reason to hide. And mm -hmm. that's true. Um, you also really, you, you terrified me in terms of what, how, how we sort of handed this all off to the government. We, you know, 9-11 happened. And of course we've, you know, they've been spying on us for forever, but 9-11 happened and we just were like a willing damsel and said, just, just please take me, take me, take me. And so I feel safe. And what has resulted is terrifying. And we can't, I don't think we can undo it. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying all that. Um, I do think, you know, this is a book. Well, I, again, I don't know what this book is about, but I think that the internet is inseparable from surveillance in a way that we really haven't, in a way that actually isn't necessary. Like, I think we can build an internet that is separable from surveillance, but we haven't done that. Um, and in particular, our generation we've just sort of, it's like a frog boiling in water where we just find ourselves in the situation where we're communicating the same way, similar to the way we always have. I, I haven't changed the register in which I talk to my friends. Um, but all of that is, is accessible to other people should they come down on me the way they came down on, say, Reality Winner. And that is an anxiety that I think is like, that we're all living with, but have trouble naming. And yes, it all, it all starts, it largely starts there after 9-11, where we just exactly, as you say, handed over this power without question. But when you say, you know, we could build a better internet, but we haven't. I remember when, you know, Elon Musk was coming over to take Twitter, take over Twitter and, you know, everybody's hair mm -hmm. went on fire and everybody flew off and started to create their own little, you know, dens where, no, we're going to be safe here. We're going to be able to speak our minds here or we're going to not have the people we don't like here. And it just so quickly 
became the same sort of, you know, it's the exact same paradigm, really. So when you say we could build something better, and I believe I'm always an optimist, but how does that happen? Because there's always going to be, you know, someone that wants to use it for their own means and is going to get it. I, I don't I mean, know how it's done. That's for sure true. I think that there are technological ways that the internet could be built such as that, that our privacy is better protected. I also think like we have become um, too comfortable with economic models where we're, you know, commodifying our attention in exchange for free content, that kind of thing is what I'm talking about. But I, you know, I agree that like there's no, no particular platform is coming to save us. So let's, let's, how did you, I was interested, I was like, how did she start this book? Was there an assignment, like a magazine assignment and you, that blew up or was it the opposite? How did you, how did this all start? How did the book all start? Yeah, it was a magazine assignment. It was just an email from um, an editor who's now at the New York Times. His name is David Wallace Wells. He's a beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the email just said like, what about Reality Winner? And at that time, reality winner was just a punchline. I mean, just like it was because it was a very surreal time, right? It was like Trump had recently been elected. Everything seemed like a joke. And people were like, reality winner. Um, What kind of name is that? And so I um, found her family. It was actually pretty hard. And she was already in jail at this point. Um, And I kind of fell in love with this quirky, funny, sarcastic, difficult, disagreeable woman who um, had made the decision to walk out of her job at the NSA with some documents under her pantyhose that she thought the rest of us should see um, and paid a very steep price for it. And so, and the more I learned about her, um, the more I realized, okay, now I have to understand, okay, everything, like, basically everything the government does is classified. Like that seems stupid. And so all of these people, like hundreds of thousands of people who work in intelligence are now have, are now accessing the stuff that we call highly classified, but actually generally, generally isn't that important. And then we were like reaching back into like, well, where did this whole system start? Um, and every string I pulled on seemed to end in some, or lead to some kind of absurdity. Um, but again, all of the a lot of the texts that I was referring to were, were written like like very serious, like knowing tone that I didn't feel like really captured that absurdity or kind of moment that we're in. Um, so it just kind of kept sprawling. Um, but what really interested me, as I was saying before, was this like kind of personal anxiety that I felt that myself and my friends were experiencing as people who whose communication is being recorded. How did you was- did you originally think this was going to be just about reality winner and then you widened the lens to bring in because you bring in Edward Snowden, you bring in Julian Assange, you start the whole story with John Walker Lind, who was the the guy that had the American that had fought in um the, with the Taliban, right? And you create yeah. this like 20-year arc that goes from 9/11 to January 6th. Um, but you know, was this a case where, um, you knew you had to bring in these other characters or did that happen? Did you want to, like, how did, how did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of this time I was writing this, I was just like, what am I doing? What is this? Um, I, I didn't, I didn't ever think it would just be about reality winner. I'm interested in like 
the history of the essay is a history of more experimental forms, right? So like we're now in a time when a lot of nonfiction is just about communicating. It's just about, um, I have this point to make and I'm going to make it clearly. And that's not interesting to me. Like I'm interested in finding new ways to um, say factual things. And um, so I'm looking to the history of like Thomas De Quincey, someone who writes like insane drug-fueled essays that lead to reveries. Um, and I'm like, how can I kind of explore this moment, bringing in this diverse, crazy array of things that I don't even necessarily know how they fit together, like like the Monster Energy Woman, <laughs> um, and but also Edward Snowden, and just kind of letting that work itself out on the page, those connections work themselves out there. Um, so I didn't know what the chronology would be or who would be at the center of it. I love that you didn't know what you were doing. And also that even as you finished this absolutely stunning book, you're still sort of like, I don't know what it was, <laughs> um, which is really funny. Um, but I think that speaks to um, a couple things at once. One of them, though, is the ineffable quality of your writing. I mean, there is something that you're doing that is like hard to describe. And I kind of, you know, it is, it's one of those pieces of writing that I kind of just want like to not talk about. I want people to go read and experience, yes. 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 you know? Um, but I also am curious, are you comfortable with this being a part of your process where like I'm writing a book, but I don't know what it's about because I have friends and myself who are in the middle of things and we panic. We absolutely yeah. torture ourselves over. I don't know what this is. I know all of this is, it, it's, it's fascinating and I'm drawn into it. But then, you know, you, you sit across from an editor that asks you, but what's it about? And you want to dissolve into salt, you know? <laughs> So I mean, I still feel that way. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally relate to that. I think that's just the experience of writing is like being terrified and it's just you in a Google document. And, and it seems like not like this thing that you put seven years of your life into could actually be nothing. Um, mm -hmm. I think you just have to live in, in that chaos for a long, long time. I tell my students this all the time, like because you don't want it to harden too soon. If you harden it too soon, it's going to look, it's going to feel like a Wikipedia article. It's going to have topic sentences. It's going to, um, you're going to be building a case, right? Mm, that's good. When you say harden it too soon, you mean like, like have a really concrete idea of like, like this is where I'm going and this is the point and, you know, yeah. you sketch it like, yeah. Yeah. And also something you see happen when people decide too soon, when they write before they're ready, is that things will be really distinct. So you'll be able to say like, oh, she got this from that source and she got this from this other source. Mm -hmm. And and it's like, there's this like kind of um, chunkiness to it yeah. instead yeah. of everything um, kind of flowing into everything else, which would be the ideal. And I, I don't think this book does that everywhere. I think that, you know, there are places where I can see like, oh, this had been fully um, digested in some way. And there are other places where it still feels to me that, there's too much of that separation, you know, and I, I'm still, I'm still working on that, but I, I do think that the only way to like move forward in a work is to like embrace that feeling of lostness and dislocation. Unless you're writing really like an the best articles <laughs> when you, I'm sure we've all had this experience when you, you walk into an article thinking, Oh, it's going to be, Oh, mm -hmm. this article is going to be about like red cupcakes. And then you do some research. You're like, wow, not only is it not about red cupcakes, it's about beavers. 
and I right. now have to walk here. And you and when when we're fortunate, and I think all of us have been fortunate, you have editors that you you say I'm going to go out and I'm I'm going to get a bear, and you come back with a beaver, and they're like, yay, a beaver, because <laughs> it actually has become this thing that you've allowed to make all the changes and all the surprises, and it's it's. It's beautiful. And, and and something else that, you know, you're saying, well, like sometimes it, your book feels like a little more concrete here. Plus, like chapters become your very dear friends or like mm-hmm. things or, you know, a dateline or something that can add a little bit of organization, but it still allows it to just sort of spam. So Yeah. And, and, and what you're saying also comes back to like kind of the nature of knowledge, because like, OK, you started it started and it was about cupcakes and then it was about bears but you have to publish at some point. And so it's like, right. well, if you had kept on with it, would it have turned out it was about, you know, icicles? Like, who knows, right? Who knows? So- <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Hi, Smoke Em If You Got listeners. This is Sarah Heppola with Nancy Rommelman. Hi. We're inviting you to listen to the rest of this conversation, but you have to subscribe go to smokeempodcast.substack.com slash subscribe. We hope to see you on the other side. Bye.